You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another podcast. We're so excited to have you all listening in again today. And please like, subscribe, leave your reviews. We love hearing from y'all. We love reading them. And we also post them on all of our social media networks. And so today we have a really amazing guest. I want to say he's probably one of the first professional baseball players we've actually had on the podcast, but we're going to really get into his old old career. So today we have Jamie Sparing, and he is an innovative business leader who has demonstrated success in building companies, M&A, and global sales and marketing communications. Jamie spent the majority of his 16-year professional career with NOV, serving in various commercial leadership roles across multiple business lines to his current role as Executive VP of Business Development and Strategy at Barrel Energy Solutions in Houston, Texas. He holds two degrees in business management and economics from Rice University, and he actually started his career as a pro baseball player. And I have to say, Jamie, it's pretty impressive that you even played at Rice and got two degrees because being a college athlete myself, it's very difficult to you know, keep up on your studies and play a sport, especially go into professional side of the sports world. So we're really excited to have you on and hear all about your journey. Uh, well, thanks, ladies. You know, it's an honor to be with you guys. You guys are blazing a trail. And yeah, just happy to have the conversation for sure. Thanks, Jamie. Today's episode is brought to you by Veril Energy Solutions. Did you know that Veril has been around since 1947? They're originally known for their drill bits, but through several acquisitions, investments, and rebranding, they now offer a diversified portfolio in drilling and completions. One of their core competencies is actually global manufacturing of consumable downhole products. They solve the industry supply chain problems. We've chosen to partner with Veril because they simply get it. They focus on their employees, they're committed to diversity and inclusion, and they know their only true sustainable advantage is their people. To learn more and stay up to date, please go to www.veril.com. Veril Energy Solutions, beyond technology, beyond normal. So I'm very curious about just your childhood and what it was like growing up. Your father is Rob Spurring, and he was a professional baseball player in the 70s who played, I believe, for the Cubs and the Astros. Obviously, in that professional world, there's 162 games a season, tons of practicing hours. I mean, your dad must have been that bleeding baseball. And I'm sure he was pushing that out towards his kids because that's usually kind of, I think, parent mentality is, you know, look at me. I also want you to follow in my footsteps. So what was life like growing up with a pro baseball player as a dad? Yeah, I mean, of course, looking back at it now, it's much more profound and appreciative now as to what he did than when you're really growing up and you're in it because he was just dad, you know, all dad was, was, you know, he had another job, but really all he did was, you know, play baseball, coach baseball. Most of our life was around the sport, all of our weekends, all of our holidays. You know, I think I missed my senior prom because of a baseball game. So, you know, growing up, that was really what it was. And so when you're growing up as a child, you don't really appreciate the magnitude of that until you get older and really start appreciating it. So, but now it certainly was relatively intense, but, you know, just like everything perspective matters. So you look back on it and, you know, just wouldn't have given it up for the world for all the things I learned from him. Obviously you became a baseball player yourself afterwards, which meant you did follow in his footsteps. And that could have been from just, 
you know, being involved in the sports throughout your childhood. Do you think deep down, looking back, you had other passions that maybe you would have made a career out of? Or was there any pressure on, I want to be a baseball player because my dad hopes that for me? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I think any child is, you're a product of your upbringing. You're a product of what you know at that moment in time. So growing up, that's really all that I foresaw for myself is if it wasn't baseball, it was some type of a sport. Grew up in a very competitive family. I have a younger brother in which, you know, he was lucky enough to travel along that same path. And so, you know, thinking about a different path for me other than sports was, I think, just secondary. You know, I knew that I would be lucky enough and be successful enough to go further than, you know, grade school because of my father and, you know, kind of the insane work ethic that was bestowed upon us. You know, I just figured that was the path. Now, you know, as that, you know, grew through college, through university, through, you know, professional levels, you know, I always found myself that, you know, the sport really didn't define me, although, you know, that kind of was my identity, you know, to a lot of the public. And so I just knew that there was going to be life after baseball at some point. I just never really knew what that was going to be. But you know, I don't think I ever really fathomed a different path. It was really just, you know, I would come home in high school and the mantra was, you know, you need to get in the backyard in the batting cage and swing a thousand times before you do homework. I mean, that was the priority in the sparing house. And, you know, when you say it out loud, it's probably not wonderful parenting, but, you know, at the time it was kind of what we did. And to a large degree, I'm grateful for it. You know, sports provides, you know, so many intangible and character building attributes that you of course take into further life. So did you ever feel that when you were playing baseball and when you knew that your career obviously could take a route in professional baseball, you know, when I was in school playing in college, a lot of my friends were on the baseball team. And I remember a lot of them would focus more on the sport and less on school. How did you balance your time? And did you think that I actually need to, you know, do well in school, you know, get my business degree because at some point I'm not going to play baseball? And did you ever have a secondary path maybe you were looking at or looking forward to outside of, you know, your baseball career? Yeah, great question. You know, being so fortunate to go to Rice University and play throughout my undergrad career there, you know, that in itself, you know, you're thrust into an environment where it's, you know, a lot of stress on academia. So being able to, you know, perform with good grades, you know, the baseball and athletic teams there at Rice and in most, you know, kind of larger universities, you know, your ability to play is contingent upon you making good grades. You know, I don't think I ever missed a class all through college because it was, you know, it was a mandate. You would not play your sport if you missed class. You would not play your sport if you did not make, you know, a high GPA. And so, you know, that in itself, you know, kind of built a, an understanding that, you know, academics matter. Plus, you know, my father, having gone through it, you know, I think the statistic now is one in every 27,000 kids that go through high school will actually make it to a professional level. And so the odds of really building a career out of it are, you know, almost impossible. So you have to be able to have, you know, an academic foundation and an education and really a plan, you know, after baseball. and. So I knew that it would be short lived, but, you know, when you're in it, you know, it's the passion, it's the dream. And, but, you know, there was always some secondary reminders that I would have to be planning for something else. I had left Rice after my junior year going into the baseball draft. And so one of the negotiations with the professional team is they would, you know, pay for the rest of my schooling 
which gave you a really good motivation to make sure that you actually finished school and you did all the things to prepare yourself for a longer business career. Unfortunately, your baseball career did end due to an injury. And, you know, we always say your identity when you play sports is really important because that's what everyone knows you for. It's all about your performance. I mean, you were even on baseball cards. So, of course, you were living your dream at that moment. Can you bring us back, if you can remember those feelings of when you realized like your baseball career was over? What pulled you from probably like the darkest moment when you realize that that dream is no longer there and that you're going to just have to completely change your life and focus on something else and move forward? Obviously, you've been extremely successful since then, but I'm sure in that moment, it probably felt like it was the end of the world. Can you tell us kind of what happened in that moment and how did you transition and like what kept you going to go pursue a career in to become an executive leader like you are today? Yeah. It was hard. No question. You know, you take the culmination of, you know, what was maybe 24 years, 25 years of your life, dedicating yourself to a sport and then it's over. But when I was in professional athletics and I don't really necessarily know why, but you know, you live in hotels, you're traveling across the country, you know, playing the sport as a job. But, you know, I was always the guy in the hotel rooms, either reading a book or, you know, doing something that actually created and helped brain cells versus, you know, kind of playing video games every day, which, you know, a lot of my teammates did and why I don't know, but I always knew that there was going to be life after baseball, largely because had I never gotten hurt, I would have really, the odds of me making it to a long-term 10, 15 year major league baseball career was very, very low. And so even though I was good enough to be at where I was, I knew that it was going to transition at some point, but when it did, you know, it is a heavy weight that, okay, oh my God, it's here. You know, what do you do now? And my resume up until that point at 23, 24 years old, literally said professional athlete, like that was it. I didn't even like wash cars growing up. So going into, okay, now I actually have to, you know, get a a real life and a real job. And what do I do? So, you know, from there, it definitely was scary. I think the one confidence I had in myself is, you know, as long as you know how to engage with people, and as long as you understand that, you know, leadership is about impact and influence, and it's all about people, then, you know, I could find myself being successful in something. And, you know, fortuitously enough, and timing, you know, is always everything, I met the right people, which got me the right conversations to enter the oil field. So from going from, you know, a stadium of fans screaming at you in a positive manner, you know, I'm in Kilgore, Texas on a coil tubing rig getting yelled at by, you know, a company man. Needless to say, I didn't stay in the field for too long. But yeah, I mean, the life radically changed and you have to adapt. But I think I was more prepared for it than I would say most. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what that was like, you know, being a professional baseball player and getting into the oil field? I mean, you mentioned briefly that, yes, you, you know, you got in the oil field, you started in the field. But for those who have never been in that position where you're literally moving from one completely different aspect of your life to to this new thing, how did you make that process 
where you mentally could be prepared for what was ahead, because it's very different than, you know, what you were doing. And I've always said too, when you're in team sports, you're also given friends because you're in this, you're in this realm of people that you are working with every day. So now you're going in the outside world and now actually you're going to have to have that team mindset still, but it's definitely a different dynamic than it is when you're part of an actual like sports team. So can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I think any radical transition in life, whether it be with jobs, careers, family, friends, whatever it may be, it's going to be difficult unless you're able to kind of make that mindset shift to say, okay, something is going to change. This is going to be different. And my mindset is I'm going to be curious. I'm going to have confidence in myself and my abilities. And for me, it really kind of went back to people. You know, so much of my life was around teams and I always had, I guess, an innate ability to communicate with people. So as long as I had that, you know, I went in and just became extremely curious. I just an insatiable thirst to learn to the point where I annoyed the vast majority of people around me. They didn't keep me in the field that long and put me in the office and inside sales because I just, you know, was not meant for that world because people needed to get their jobs done versus just have conversations. Um, <laughs> But yeah, you know, I think it's a mindset shift that some people struggle with and all of us do whenever there's a massive change in our life. And so, but that mindset shift has to be around growth, around learning, around, you know, just kind of leaning forward and being okay that things are going to be scary because, you know, really growth, you know, without pain, there is no growth. And so I think it's a mindset thing. It's hard for young people and young professionals to do that. But, you know, I think that's what the secret sauce is. And now a little word from our sponsor, Technique FMC. Marcel, you know what I really appreciate about Technique FMC being one of our sponsors is their mission is directed towards a more inclusive and diverse workforce. One of the reasons why we started this podcast, as many of you know, was to move the industry forward and they back that belief. Their focus is creating a culture of inclusion that will attract, develop, and retain a more diverse, talented group and ensure their employees can always bring their authentic selves to work. This is important, you know, especially to our generation. Totally agree with you, Jamie. But beyond the DNI, they're also big into technology. They believe in change and innovation in everything they do. Their offerings range from individual products and services to fully integrated solutions with a single interface to ensure a seamless execution. They have four main priorities, energy transition, emerging materials, digital, and industrialization. To find out more about their most popular technologies like SubC 2.0, iProduction, Gemini ROV system and I complete, go to techniquefmc.com. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. And I totally agree. So you get into the oil field, like you said, you become inside sales, you move into the office, and then you have an incredible eight-year successful career at NOV. You climb up the ladder. Clearly, your work ethic must have been excellent during those years because looking at your LinkedIn, in those eight years, you climbed up the ladder pretty fast, I would say, compared to other people. And you became director of global sales and marketing right before you left in 2012. And you actually mentioned to us how that decision came about. I believe they asked you to go close a deal or try to figure something out with the VPs of scientific drilling who are you know, one of the biggest customers for you guys. 
And you actually ended up leaving that meeting thinking, you know, how are we going to work together? Like it was such a great meeting. You know, sometimes you meet someone and you say like, we're going to work together one day. And that was kind of how it came to be. And you decided to leave. How was that decision made? Because you saw this trajectory path of climbing up the ladder quickly at NOV. And obviously I'm sure, you know, there was no ceiling for you at that point where you can maybe see yourself in a few years, keep climbing up even more if that was what you wanted. What made you decide to leave that career path and restart kind of all over again in a new company that was a lot smaller? Yeah. You know, NOV, what a dynamic and amazing company in the oil field. You know, I think quite possibly probably the most strategic in oil field services, just how they've positioned themselves over the years. And going through that company, I was put in positions that I was just not ready for, almost every one of them. And, you know, timing is everything. When I was, you know, very, very early in my career at NOV, I was identified by, at the time, was the chief sales officer and one of the original founders of National Oil Well, a gentleman named Jerry Goshi, who today, you know, was probably one of the most profound mentors you know, that I've ever had. And, you know, he kind of took me under his wing. I was, you know, his apprentice to a large degree for a number of years. And so you have a, you know, a young 20 something, you know, kid flying around the world, learning the dynamics and how a business works of a multi-billion dollar market cap company, you know, putting together processes and programs and leading people that are, you know, far beyond my tenure, you know, being in board meetings and, you know, learning just, the dynamics of business much, much faster than a lot of my peer group. And it was all just, you know, fortuitous for me. But, you know, because of my upbringing, I just, I had a very, very strong work ethic to a large degree that, you know, probably gave me plenty of scars throughout my career. But yeah, I mean, a great opportunity to be put into a lot of positions I was not ready for. But, you know, you learn by being thrown into the deep end of the pool. You know, we talked about that before the podcast started recording is, And that was really the summary of my NOV career. My engagement with the gentleman from Scientific Drilling, he was the chief operating officer at the time, you know, tough, tough negotiation. All of a sudden we come out, you know, arm in arm, you know, as friends versus, you know, enemies. And I firmly believe that, you know, life is too short to work with people who suck. And so I don't know if that was okay on the podcast, but- (laughs) but we agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, yeah, we do. I attest whatever my career has been successful or unsuccessful to the mentors and the people that have been absolutely impactful and inspirational to me throughout my career. And this gentleman was one of them. And, you know, in a very, very large company like NOV, it was very profound that no matter what impact I made, decisions I made, initiatives I put together, you know, it was not going to move the needle and NOV would continue to be a great company despite, you know, Jamie Sparing. And so, you know, Scientific was a rapidly growing private, unique, you know, company in oil field services. And that gentleman was, you know, was kind of leading the charge. And so it was a wonderful opportunity to take a lot of things from scratch that didn't exist, go in there, really create a lot of impact and growth in the company. It was right around 2011 through 2000 you know, 14, which was, you know, a great time in the oil field. And so a lot of just creating, you know, new processes, growing the business very fast, implementing strategies and the ability to go and execute those strategies. And it was just a wonderful time to, you know, take all the things I learned and and really go apply it. 
So, you know, it was an easy decision to me. Of course, it was at the time, the most pivotal decision I've ever made. Scary, nonetheless, but it turned out to be a wonderful decision. And what a great company that was. You know, it really was pivotal in your career because you took three and a half years at Scientific, which really made gave you those development skills of working with a smaller company and bringing it up to scale that you went on to then co-found Rubicon Oilfield International, which this was a very exciting venture for you of high growth oilfield products company. And it was also backed by private equity, which is something that you really foster in and you do well and you thrive. And at the end of the day, this business actually became your baby. And you eventually had to walk away from it. So what's really interesting also that people might not know about you, Jamie, is you have a personal blog, which I happen to read. <laughs> and in this blog, you talked about this very openly. And one of the things that you mentioned was you said, in quotes, I walked away from the business I helped create, name, structure, and build. It wasn't a business. It was everything. Consuming every part of my emotion, of subordinating the other things in life to its far-reaching vision. The grief cycle lasted a few months, questioned so many questions, and then I understood why I failed as a leader. You go on to talk about perspective and how this impacted you. Can you elaborate on that? Because up until this point, you know, your career had really skyrocketed. You had been a notable leader. You still, I mean, you're of course a leader today. And yet in this moment, you're really doubting yourself. And you even said that you failed, which, you know, is very hard for a lot of people to even, you know, say out loud. So can you share what you learned and where you came to identify this failure? Sure. What an incredible experience that was still to this day, the greatest learning experience that I'll probably ever have in business. But, you know, it was a great strategy backed by, you know, a lot of money in a great company and arm in arm with some just great people. And so the narrative of building Rubicon Oilfield International was really, really exciting. And, you know, we basically had a jetpack to our back and it was you know, four or five years of just some radical, intense focus in, you know, putting that investment to work. And you're right. I mean, I subordinated everything in my life, you know, to that. But when it got to the stage where the performance of the company and in the market position at the time, it was the right phase where the founding team and certainly myself, it was the right thing to move on. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's tough. It's tough emotionally. You know, you go through a lot of kind of different phases of, you know, what could have happened. And when I say I failed as a leader, you know, when you leave, it's so easy to make a whole bunch of excuses as to why things don't work out. But I think those that learn how to take extreme ownership, it may take a while, but eventually you just have to look in the mirror and say that, you know, here are all of the things that you could have done better as a leader, as a peer, and as someone who is responsible for, you know, many, many, many people inside that enterprise. And so if it didn't reach to the performance and the results that you were expecting, it's because of no one else. It's because of you. And so it was great because I had this year-long hiatus, if you will, where it was just a profound journey in self-exploration in finding ways in which, you know, I needed to improve as a leader in ways in which, you know, I'm kind of redefined that the things of the past didn't necessarily define me what's ahead of me, you know, is only going to be the things that matter, defining what really makes me happy, which finding out the things of the past didn't necessarily make me happy. And so kind of resetting my purpose. And I think the journey for people's purpose is a tough, you know, rigorous and laborious thing. And 
So I think I found what that purpose is, and that allowed me to kind of make the next decisions going forward. But, you know, looking back at that Rubicon experience, amazing people, amazing learning. Harvard Business Review could put a case study together of what we went through in the amount of complexity, the amount of acquisitions, the amount of consolidation, the amount of just business challenges that we had to solve. And I'm forever grateful for that experience, you know, despite what it looks like today. That business still survives under a larger, very successful business today that is well-led. And I know it'll be successful in the future. Incredible. I think, like you mentioned, going through something like that is worth way more than going to go get like three MBAs. Oh, it was like, awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Also, we expect blogger on your title on your LinkedIn after this, because we had no idea. <laughs> I have no idea why I even started doing that. I think there's just a whole bunch of things rattling in my brain. And if one person around the world gets benefit from it, then you know that's good enough for me. Awesome. Oh, I'm sure a lot of people would benefit out of it. So let's talk about building Rubicon. Tons of stress. It's, it sounds cool to get you know hundreds of millions of dollars of investment, but that also comes with a lot of stress, sleepless nights, because at the end of the day, you have to deliver and you have to pay back all of this money. And the business needs to do extremely well for all of the shareholders. And a stress that I think maybe most people will never feel in life unless you're trying to build a business in this kind of magnitude. I know when we first spoke to you, you mentioned that those were probably like some of the hardest years of your life. And also because it took away from family, from your wife, from your two daughters, something that looking back, like you mentioned, it was the best thing that has built you to become who you are today in your leadership style, in your business style, but also that you realize what were the things that mattered in life. And, you know, during the hiatus, you'd look at, you know, what really is what Jamie cares about. And it's maybe not a lot of what went through in those four years. Can you talk to us a little about what that was like? And then moving forward, you decided to make a commitment to your family and to yourself that maybe you weren't going to choose to do that ever again. Yeah, it was. I mean, I certainly have the scars to prove it. And I know a lot of my ex-teammates do as well. There was just a lot of heart and you know, emotion and passion putting into making something successful. And that's not unique at all to the thousands of people that are probably watching this podcast that have gone through the same thing. Anything that you know you really lean forward and commit to doing well, you want to do well, especially if people's livelihoods are at stake, you know, within a company. And so you know, at the end of that experience, there was a lot of things that were sacrificed, like many of us have. And so when that journey was over, it was time to really level set and say, what are the things that make me happy? And, you know, working, you know, 60, 70 hour, you know, weeks and flying around the world as a badge of honor and, you know, not being able to see some pretty memorable experiences for my kids are, are not the things that make me happy. But, you know, you still have to you know, if you have it within you and you're still competitive and you still want to lead, then, you know, how do you find that blend? Because, you know, people talk about work-life balance. There's really no such thing, you know, in this crazy new world that we live in, you know, it's really a blend. It's a work-life blend. You don't have to enjoy everything, but you have to find the joy in everything. So, you know, the blend between work and the personal life, what I believe there's a let's just say there's a philosopher and a philosophy that I believe in. And it's an equation and it's called uh, P times E times S3. And that may be a bit obscure, but 
you know, the P stands for purpose. And I think that the journey for me to be able to find purpose allows people to have more sustained motivation in what they're doing. So we as working professionals, the late nights that we work, you know, the times in which we're not home because we're with, you know, colleagues or customers, the times in which we're on flights in which we'd rather be at baseball games, you know, as long as your purpose is with intent and as long as it's clear, it'll keep that motivation going. And the other one is, is E, which is, you know, energy. You, know, you can't fulfill others with an empty glass. And if you look at the last couple of years in this chaotic pandemic, for us as leaders, you know, we haven't just become tired, we've become deplenished. And we often take for granted just how deplenished we are as people, both at home and at work. Because when you're tired, you can take a nap. Mm -hmm. But when you're deplenished, you know, you truly need rejuvenation. And that's a radically different thing for people. And so that E for energy is, you know, we've got to be able to find the adequate amount of time to do the things that give us energy, whether it's being with our family, whether it's doing our hobbies more often, whether it's working out or just focusing on our health, that area of energy, we cannot lead effectively and we can't be great parents or spouses without energy. And then last is that S3, which is kind of small, simple steps. And, you know, when you think about sustained motivation, it's not about setting the flag in the horizon with this unattainable big vision of all the things you want to do. It's about getting 1% better every day. And it's little bitty things that are so attainable and so achievable that it's almost impossible not to achieve them. And as long as you get those micro things going every day, that's what progress is. And I think if, if you have purpose, if you focus on having energy, and if your goals are really set in very, very small, small blocks and small pieces, you know, that's how you can create a work-life blend that allows you to appreciate all the stress that is, you know, upon us every day. So I just went on a rant right there. No, that was the best part of it. Did my eyes roll back in my head? I don't know. (laughs) You know, what really resonated, and Masiel would fully agree with this, and this is one thing her and I have implemented, you know, once you have children, it's like all of a sudden your time becomes like really valuable. So you have to start realizing like, is that meeting or is that lunch or is that breakfast really worth my time? And how much time am I going to waste driving to it, sitting in it and leaving it? And does that fulfill me? And does that fulfill my purpose? So I think children really play a big role in finding out really what your passions are and what your drivers are, because you really start to look at your daily life and how can you spend more time with them, but yet still have the impact and still follow the goals and dreams that you have. So I'm really happy that you shared that with us. You know, jumping back into kind of some of the things that you had mentioned before and when you spent that time at Rubicon and that year off and you committed to yourself, I'm never going to do this again. I'm not going to get involved in something like this. And then bam, you jump into Veril Energy Solutions, which ends up becoming backed by a private equity group. And all of a sudden it's starting to look a lot like a similar experience. What made you make this decision and why? Well, I mean, clearly, despite what I'm telling you, one of the attributes about me is I have zero self-control. So (laughs) Yeah, I mean, during that time, you know, I did make a commitment to myself and my family that, you know, my life trajectory was going to be outside of energy. And it certainly was not going to be dedicating, you know, my life to being an executive inside the oil field. And all of a sudden, here I am. And I think it goes back to my purpose, though I never really took time to define it earlier in my career. 
was so much more self-absorbed. It was, what do I need to do to put myself in a great career situation? What do I need to do to put my family in a great financial situation? You know, what are the things about me that I need to do? And I think during that year after Rubicon, it was much more intent driven about, you know, impacting and influencing others. So, you know, much more of my time and energy towards my family and my children, much more time, you know, giving and sharing the things that I've learned to others, whether it be in mentorship or coaching or just friendships. And so that purpose now defined as much more, it's about, you know, people and relationships versus what I'm trying to achieve. I saw Veril, you know, Derek Nixon, who's the CEO, you know, we had known each other just by being some competitors. And of course, people just know each other through industry. And, you know, we started talking about the narrative of where Veril wanted to take the business. And even though it sounds radically similar to my previous life, it has so many unique differences in terms of the approach, in terms of the people involved, the culture, you know, the investments and how the philosophy of the investors saw the view of the world. And it just made sense. And so those conversations eventually evolved into, okay, if I can take, you know, what I've learned while still wanting to learn and come into the business and help the business achieve its long-term mission, and I get to work around some pretty amazing people, then why not? So, you know, another leap of faith, and most of my leaps of faith have been driven by people versus, you know, the chase or the dream of something else. And so, you know, thus far, it's been a great decision. That's awesome. We actually had Derek on the podcast. So if you're listening, go look for Derek's episode, the CEO of Errol. And I can just imagine him, you know, giving you a call and he would be someone that would be very hard to say no to with his, you know, accent from overseas in Scotland. And he who was an incredible guest and he was so good at his leadership skills as well. So I can see why you were like, okay, where do I sign? I'm going to jump back in into this. So tell us a little bit more about Veril and maybe some interesting things that none of the listeners know about or what's unique about Veril on your ESG strategies. Sure. So Veril Energy Solutions, though a company that's been in the industry for over you know, seven decades, really known as a independent manufacturer of drill bits around the oil field, both in the oil field and mining sectors. The business today is really brand new. So the thesis around 2020, when Veril was divested from its original parent company, it was acquired by a private equity called Blue Water out of London as well as a private wealth investor, one of the original founders of Veril, you know, originally just kind of put the business together to say, look, let's build a unique, globally integrated manufacturing business, rebrand it, bring in some new leadership, some new fresh eyes in terms of what the future horizon could be like. And let's really just build it around servicing the customer with a pretty unique business experience. And what has always been kind of a drill bit manufacturing business has really turned its trajectory to serving the oil field as a manufacturer. So no longer really high emphasis on building products and selling products, but now just seeing the need for manufacturing consolidation around the world, seeing the capacity constraints of a global supply chain pandemic and being able to take the really strong global footprint and expertise as a manufacturer now starting to build products for competitors, now starting to build products for unconventional customers. And so, you know, pivoting into really being a value creator as a supply chain manufacturer 
versus just out there competing with products has, has really served the business extremely well over the last few years. And again, that was kind of one of my motivators to come over is it needed a new growth trajectory. This was a possibility. And so since then, there's been a lot of risk-taking, a lot of great investment, and a lot of good decisions that's put us in a position where now there's a lot of upside to the business. That's awesome. No, I think it was definitely a great decision. And also, we'd like to say we're very happy that Veril's also a big supporter of the podcast, but also the initiatives that, that we put forth when it comes to ESG and you know just being more diverse in general. And Veril is definitely there. And, and we see it also all over your social media. So thank you all for being a supporter. But lastly, what we'd like to end on, and I think I'm, we might have pulled this from your blog as well, which we liked. It was high performers don't do what they do so they can fly to Aspen on a Gulfstream or drive around Berlin in a Bugatti. I don't know. That sounds kind of fun. That sounds kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Most of them, the best ones anyways, do what they do because they're lit up by a mission they care about deeply. What is that mission for you, Jamie? I think it goes back to you know that purpose that was redefined you know over the last three or four years is you know to live life through you know loyalty, gratitude, and impacting others. And so, you know, for me, it's really about making sure that I'm dedicating much more of my time, my experience, and my love towards others. And most of my life and my career has not been that. So it's been really uplifting and fulfilling. But yeah, I mean, those that are able to define what the purpose is, you know, you can see the world through a whole new lens. And I'm just lucky enough to have those experiences to be able to do that. And, you know, I'll tell you, I think the ability to help sponsor and support this podcast on behalf of Errol, you know, the pleasure is all on our side. I mean, you guys have been able to do so many amazing things. You know, we're really leaning forward with ESG initiatives as a real core commitment, especially to diversity and inclusion, a number of, you know, internal initiatives to make sure that we are really being a leader in that space. And so a lot of things that, you know, we believe that we're aligned with in terms of flipping the barrel. So ladies, I mean, continue to you know, blaze your trail. We are more than just honored to be able to help support you and, you know, really appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much. We had such a wonderful time having you on the podcast. And just to let you know, after your pre-interview, I mean, we were like freaking out, not only because you were a pro baseball player and you're on a baseball card when I Googled you, but you have this aura of you of just Like I can tell that you're a leader within 10 minutes and yeah, we're so grateful that you came on the podcast and thank you for sharing your story and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. We're going to link your blog too. So when you go to his episode, we're going to have his blog on there. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It's so funny because every time we say your blog, I could tell that you're like, why did I write that blog? And why is it still on? (laughs) And a part of me is just like, what did I write? (laughs) earlier vlogs like I need it to might remember. be deleted by the time we post this oh, but it was, well, this is a reminder that whatever you put on the internet will stay on the internet no doubt no doubt no doubt and no. you remember when oil got below zero right yeah. well that's probably similar to what my baseball card is worth so <laughs> I wouldn't put too much emphasis behind that uh, Again. Jamie thanks, thanks you Jamie. for your time it's my pleasure ladies you're awesome